0: Would you please, uh, would you please, turn with me to <coughs> Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Reading from verses uh, chapter four, reading from verses one to sixteen. Hear the word of God. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high... He led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will be no longer infants, Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunningness, cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in all things into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And blessed are those who hear the word of God, uh, who keep it in their hearts, and who do it. Amen. Let's turn to God in prayer. Our Father, your holy word is before us. And we pray that just as you have exalted, uh, above all things, your name and your word, so as we read and study this text this morning, uh, you would exalt your name in our hearts and that you would write your word uh, in our minds. We pray, Father, that he who is the author of the scripture may also be its interpreter for us this morning, so that we may not be taught by the voice of any man, but by the word of the living God and through his spirit. And we ask this, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably one of the most significant Christian meetings, I think, that I've ever attended Took place in 1974 in the Church of Christ in Epping in Sydney. Uh, I remember the evening well. I'd driven across Sydney with a number of friends uh, to hear a, a speaker who had come from the United States. His name was Dr. Ray Stedman. He was the minister of the Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, which was a suburb of San Francisco, and he had come to give a series of addresses on the subject of the church as the body of Christ. And the conference was entitled Body Life. What he said that night uh, not only challenged our thinking about Christian ministry, but for many of us also revolutionised it. We began to understand afresh uh, the importance of the ministry in the church and also the challenge of every member ministry. Dr Stedman was speaking that evening on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, from the 11th to the 13th verses, and it's in that first part of the passage uh, that I want to look at with you today. And the reason that I want to do that is because I believe that it's crucial to our role as both believers and leaders in the church that we understand the place that Christ has assigned to us. It's not only important for preachers and elders to understand that, um, but it's important for every Christian to understand it because here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we discover that every one of us has a ministry. Grace has been given to us, Paul tells us, as Christ has apportioned it, and that grace enables us to perform works of service which God has set us apart to do. So if you want to fulfil your specific Christian calling, the calling which God has given to you as an individual, uh, you need to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Now I wonder if you know uh, what your specific call is. Uh, Do you know how you are to be prepared or trained to perform uh, the works of service or the works of ministry that God has assigned you. Uh, if you're not sure, then this passage will help you as it helped me. Passage is important, I think, for another reason too, and it's what I call alignment of expectations. Uh, one of the most critical factors in the life of a church is that there is a convergence of expectation both on the part of the members of the church as well as the leadership of the church so that both those who have the responsibility of oversight and those who have the responsibility of ministry and service understand their specific roles within the congregation. Uh, It's a little bit like ballroom dancing. Uh, Not that I have ever engaged in it, but I can observe just from watching it that each of the parties who engage in ballroom dancing, have specific roles assigned to them. Uh, Someone leads and someone follows. Uh, Someone has a certain, you know, choreography that they have to follow, whereas the other one uh, may perhaps initiate. And uh, it's equally important in the church that we have a clear understanding of the roles that God has assigned to us. And it's important that there's a convergence of those expectations on those who are involved. The Southern Baptist Convention in the United States did a survey not so long ago in seven of its southeastern states where they interviewed 3,200 people. And one of the questions they asked them was, what do you think are the essential responsibilities of the leadership of the church and specifically pastors? And they identified 108 expectations. When they asked the interviewees which of those 108 expectations they thought were essential, uh, collectively they replied that every one of them was. I don't know about you, but uh, if I ever had to walk into a management interview where the managers had 108 expectations of me and they expected me to fulfil every one, uh, you could see how certain difficulties might arise. Well, the Apostle Paul makes clear in the earlier verses of this chapter that God does have expectations of us and he wants us to fulfil certain roles or callings. And to that end, he tells us in the 7th verse that Christ has specifically apportioned grace to each one of us, gifts that will enable us to do so. And then several verses on in the 11th verse, He tells us that God has given the church a number of very special gifts that enable all the other gifts to function at their full capacity. In other words, there are some gifts which God has given to the church which he regards as absolutely foundational and critical to releasing other people in the church to fulfil their ministries. Without these gifts, uh, the others simply cannot flourish. Well, you say, what are the gifts that are these special gifts? Let's read in verse 11 what they are. There, Paul says, It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. You'll notice how each one of those gifts relates to the ministry of God's word. In other words, foundational to the life of the church and to the flourishing of the church is the ministry of the word, but that word can be dispensed in a number of ways. First two gifts, apostles and prophets, are concerned with originating the word of God and actually ensuring that the word of God can be heard by people. Apart from apostles and prophets, we would not know that there was a word from God. Without them, the early church would not have had a message. God gave these people immediate revelation. The apostles were more authoritative in their pronouncements, the prophets less so because the early church was told to test the prophets and discern what the prophets were saying. The last two gifts mentioned, evangelists and pastor teachers, are concerned not so much with originating the word of God but actually proclaiming and explaining the word of God. In other words, their task is to take the word which has been inscripturated or written and make it plain to the people. Evangelists explain the gospel to us so that we can actually begin the Christian life whereas pastor teachers are more concerned with promoting the development and the growth of that life once it's begun. In other words, evangelists are essentially obstetricians who help us through the process of the new birth, whereas pastor teachers are basically paediatricians who ensure that we grow up as Christians in a healthy way so that we can grow and develop in ways that will enable us to mature and serve Christ and glorify his name. Now before we actually get to think of these individual offices, I think it's uh, important for us to understand why these offices have been given. What is their purpose? And in particular, what is the purpose of pastor-teachers? What do we actually expect them to do? Well, Paul tells us in the 12th verse of this chapter that these pastor-teachers are given so that we will be prepared to engage in works Of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. In other words, God's purpose in giving us pastor teachers and evangelists is to ensure that we recover, as it were, the lost image of God in us, that we are conformed to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And that takes place through the ministry of God's word. If you want to grow up into the fullness of your potential as God has made you, uh, you only do so as your life uh, becomes full of God's word and you begin to understand how it applies to your life. Now what does it mean when Paul says that these pastor teachers and evangelists are there to uh, equip us or prepare us for works of service. Well, in the original Greek, uh, the word which the NIV translates as prepare is the word katatismon, from which we get our English word artisan, someone who works with his hands to make or to build things. You might remember that uh, this word of mending is first used in the New Testament, uh, where Jesus meets his disciples and we read that they were down on the water's edge at the Lake of Galilee, uh, mending their nets. This is where this Greek word is used. It's also used in other ways uh, to refer to equipping or preparing. But essentially what is in mind is that as these men were on the beach Mending their nets, they were actually getting the nets ready uh, to fulfil their purpose or their function, which was to catch fish. When we think about how that word mend might be used in the church, what we understand is that pastor teachers are given to the church to help mend us, to put us, as it were, back together in a Christ-like way so that we can serve God faithful. Perhaps modern equivalent uh, is the idea of shaping up. It's the task of pastor teachers to help us shape up uh, so that we can fulfil the responsibilities that Christ has given each one of us to do. Well, how's the preparation to be done? Moment's reflection tells us uh, that the instrument that God uses is His word. We're strengthened, we're renewed by the teaching of the word of God. You might remember Paul's final statements to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He says, uh, before he departs, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up And give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Again, he tells uh, his younger associate, Timothy, as he's working in Ephesus, uh, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, this ministry of the word of God is critical to helping people reach their full potential, fulfilling their calling under God and engaging in the works of service that God has prepared for them to do. And that's why teaching and preaching the scriptures in the church is so important. Do you realise that your life and your ministry and you fulfilling your calling under God is dependent on receiving a faithful word And hearing the gospel expounded to you week by week here in church. Ministers are not primarily priests who celebrate the sacraments, nor are they social workers who set up helpful welfare services, nor are they psychologists who set up counselling services, nor are they CEOs who run an ecclesiastical kind of a corporation. Uh, The fundamental task of a pastor-teacher is to preach and to expound the word of God and to bring the word of God to bear on your conscience and on my conscience so that we are fully equipped for every good work. Uh, That's the essential task of a Presbyterian minister. He is a minister of the word of God. This teaching of the truth of the word of God is what the Apostle Peter calls... Feeding the flock. In other words, the Word of God is meant to nourish and strengthen and build the body of Christ. Not only does it nourish and build, but it also purifies. Remember the prayer of Jesus on the night before he was betrayed Father, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth faithful pastor devotes his ministry to preaching through all the scriptures in order to nourish and to purify the hearts and souls of people so that we in turn can do the work that God has assigned to us. And actually, there's no better way of doing that than the expository method of preaching. Why? Because it's the only method that you can find, as it were, in scripture that enables A pastor to cover comprehensively the message of God. If our lives are dependent upon receiving the whole counsel of God, not selective portions, then preachers need to expound the scriptures. Whether they expound books of the Bible or sections of the Bible, we need to hear a balanced presentation of truth. Uh, As Isaiah said, it should be line upon line, and precept upon precept. Now, one of the most amazing illustrations, I think, of the power of equipping the saints is found in the 19th chapter of the book of the Acts. Uh, You might like to turn to the Acts of the Apostles with me. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. Now, it's interesting that this is the very city to whom Paul is writing this letter. And so as he's writing this letter, you need to remember that the Ephesians understood the power of the word of God because they experienced it, particularly over a two-year period. In the eighth verse it reads, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. It's extraordinary. Every day for two years, Uh, knowing Paul's capacity... Uh, to talk at length about scripture. Uh, I mean, a man once fell out of a window asleep (laughs) because he was so exhausted by the Apostle Paul's exposition. Uh, You can imagine that it would have gone for more than an hour a day, probably two hours at least during their siesta period, presumably. But what was the result of this more than 700 hours of scriptural exposition? Well... He tells us that both Jews and Greeks and all of Asia heard the gospel. In other words, the saints who came along to that lecture hall on a daily basis and heard the scriptures expounded and the message of salvation explained to them and Christian ethics taught as they heard all those things and understood the great plan of redemption, they were filled with hope and joy and joy and a new spirit of excitement and a belief that this was the message that would ultimately save the world. And they fanned out into the whole province. And Paul says everybody heard about the Christian church that had begun in Ephesus, and presumably many of them heard the gospel. Do you realise that the same thing happened in the 16th century uh, in continental Europe and then spread to places like England and then a little later to the United States. It all happened in a little academy in Geneva. Uh, Sadly, today, that academy's fallen into a bit of disrepair. The University of Geneva hasn't done much to help it. Now, sits there as a bit of a disused art room. But that's where people flocked from all around Europe to come to hear a man who understood the meaning of the word of God and who could teach it. John Calvin. And the people who heard him expound that word day by day and up in the cathedral of St. Pierre where he preached every day went to the ends of the earth with that message. Now I'd like you to notice that Paul places great emphasis on the people that God has given to the church. Notice that he lists four categories of gifted men who were devoted to the well-being of the flock. And I think it's important for us here to understand that what Paul is drawing attention to is that the great gift of God to the church is the very people who serve the church through teaching the truth of the gospel. I want you to notice that, that the great blessing to the church is people. Because so often we think that if the church is going to have an impact in our culture, what we really need is a new program. Uh, We need a new strategy. We need some new new technique that will somehow or other deliver the results for which we crave. Here uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in the seventh verse of that fourth chapter. But to each one of us Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Notice that the grace is given to the people, not to the methods. We so often associate blessings with methods or strategies. And while the church may be looking for different methods and strategies in approaches, God is giving men, godly and gifted men who know how to both expound and explain the meaning of Scripture and to apply it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So the greatest gift of all, the most precious gift that we can have, is those who understand the Scriptures and ex- can explain them to us week by week in a systematic and integrated way. Not that that's their sole work. Uh, they have a duty of care to provide leadership and uh, watchfulness and oversight to those who are in the church. But their main responsibility as shepherds is to feed the flock. Now, what conclusions can we draw from this? Well, I think the first conclusion that you and I can draw is that we should be praying for the ministry of the word and that that word would flourish in this congregation. And that not only that, but that God in his goodness and his mercy would speak to some of us, and release us from whatever else it is that we have so that we can devote ourselves to this other necessary thing. You know, it's it's all very well uh, to succeed in terms of this world, but it may be that God has uniquely gifted you and equipped you uh, to serve Him in the Ministry of the Gospel. That doesn't mean simply because you have a number of gifts that that means that this is your calling. You should sense a special burden or calling from the Lord himself. But we should be praying for our ministers, for Chris and for John, that they'll be empowered and strengthened uh, continually to expound the word and teach us the word and preach the gospel to us. And we should be praying that God in his mercy would also raise up both men and women who will be teachers of the Bible, both as future pastors and as lay workers who can instruct the men, the women and the children of our church. And remember, the emphasis must always be on people. It's the quality of the people. The important thing is that people arrive at the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ it's not the quantity of the people it's the quality of the people and it's not the strategies, the methods or the money now let me at this point uh, ask this further question what should be the aim of those who minister the word to us Grant that they might have a number of aims in mind, but what are the ultimate aims which they ought to have as they minister the word? So if you ask that question to many involved in church leadership today, they'd say, uh, to grow the church. Say, so, well, how? Well, increase in numbers. 10% per annum. I've heard that said in Sydney uh, for the last few years. Church must grow by 10% per annum. Uh, Where do we find that in scripture? Paul doesn't mention growth in numbers as a goal. What he does mention is growth in life, growth in character, growth in maturity and growth in service. Uh, We can leave the numbers safely to the Lord. In some situations, he may give us 100%. In other situations, uh, it may be a lot less. But our task surely is to be faithful in discharging the ministries that we've been given and to do them with all our hearts. There is one clear goal in the sense of an ultimate goal, and that is this. Paul says God wants the church to become mature. He uses a Greek word, telios. It means complete or perfect. You'll find it there in the 13th verse. It's expressed both in terms of our knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the Son of God and the unity of faith and so that we attain to the the measure, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in all his knowledge and all his virtues. That's what we should aspire to. So Christ-like character as it is expressed in service is what Paul is aiming at in his ministry in the church. I hope you can see that what Paul says here is perfectly consistent with the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount because there you'll read in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, at the very end of that chapter, uh, some words which Jesus expressed uh, to his disciples. He said, in contrasting the righteousness which he expected of them with that of the Pharisees, he said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect that Jesus uses there in the 48th verse of Matthew 5 is the same word that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter 4. In other words, both Paul and Jesus are aiming for the same thing in ministry for us. They want us to be mature both in knowledge and Christ-likeness. They want us to be complete. Their great desire for us is that we be perfect, like God himself. Not so much in the sense that their goal is sinless perfection in this life, uh, because by virtue of our sinful natures, uh, we can't be. Not until the resurrection can we leave these sinful bodies. But I think what Paul has in mind is this. Once we are clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ, we are to make every effort to realise in our experience what you and I have become in principle. In other words, if we have received the righteousness of Christ ourselves as a gift, then Paul says, manifest that righteousness. Live out that righteousness in your life. I think it's fairly clear from just a brief glance at Paul's letters Uh, that the aims of many modern church leaders are quite different. See, Paul's aim wasn't to organise all the house churches in Ephesus into one great denomination. Nor was his aim simply to fill church buildings with people. Uh, He wanted the church to grow, but his great aim, his great hope, was that through the ministry of the word, he would begin to see people in the church become small replicas of Jesus Christ, both in terms of their growing knowledge, their obedience to God and their Christ-like service. And that's why he says to Timothy, who's ministering in Ephesus, until I come, devote yourself, adhere to, be glued to this one thing, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and to the preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift, but be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. I think it's really important that we understand that the Apostle Paul was totally focused on producing this maturity or perfection in Christ through the ministry of the word. And I mention this because the task of church leaders is constantly being revised to reflect the latest fads that usually uh, arise in the world and then get passed on to the church. Bruce Shelley, uh, an American church historian, wrote a very interesting article in 1992 uh, in which he examined the changing roles and expectations that both leadership, the leadership of the church in the United States as well as its congregations had of ministers. Back in the 1850s, he said, people looked to their pastors as pastor theologians whose primary responsibility was to expound the word of God and teach the flock. The end of the 19th century, with the rise of higher criticism, uh, many ministers lost their confidence in the gospel and tried to justify their existence by becoming more and more involved in this worldly kingdom as social activists. With the arrival of uh, Sigmund Freud and the growing popularity of psychotherapy, uh, many of them began to reconceive their work in terms of Christian psychotherapy, counselling. And then with the advent of the modern management revolution, uh, the role of, of, of ministers has again been reconceived in terms of being CEOs or community leaders and celebrities. Many people today think ministers are men for all seasons, at least that's what a lot of people think. They're promoters, uh, they're celebrities, they're counsellors, they're program directors and if they can fit it in they're also teachers. I remember uh, going to a speech day a couple of years ago down at the Opera House and as I was coming back to catch a train back to my home, uh, I walked under part of the uh, the Carl Expressway, and just below it, right near the Manly Ferries, were a number of buskers. Uh, They're always there, but uh, this one in particular caught my attention because he was doing—he was swallowing swords, which you know is a fairly dangerous occupation. <laughs> he was also putting uh, lighted, you know, torches down his mouth in and out, and uh, he then began to spin plates. Now, I don't know whether you've ever seen this sorts of people. They get a, a plate on a stick and they spin the plate. And the spa- the plate will stay spinning for a couple of minutes if it's done really well. And he was spinning all these plates and then giving them to people in the audience who were, you know, bystanders and asking them to hold on to them. And he spent the next five or ten minutes running around, spinning plates, putting new plates up and giving them to people. And then he began to run around the crowd after everybody's plate started to look a bit wobbly and re-spin it for them. And we stood there for about five or ten minutes while this guy just went around spinning everyone's plates. And I thought as I was standing there, you know, that's what some people expect me to do as a minister. Get their plate up and then start spinning it. And when it starts to go a bit wobbly, go and spin it a bit more. No wonder ministers sometimes feel a little frantic. But that's not the job of the pastor teacher, to spin other people's plates. It's his job to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And it's the responsibility of the saints to fulfil their calling, the specific calling that God has given you and to use the spiritual gifts which God has given you to manifest Christ in some form of meaningful service. So the average member of the congregation is is not just a passive pucy. We should be conscious of our spiritual gift. We should be conscious of the assignments that God has called us to. And we should look forward to coming here each week because we know we're going to be better equipped to fulfil those responsibilities. So let me ask you, why do you come to church? Do you come here to grow in your knowledge of the Son of God through hearing the word taught, preached, expounded? you come here with the expectation that your mind will be changed, that your attitudes will be transformed, uh, that your motives will be purified and that your enthusiasm will be stirred? Because that's the responsibility and that's the task of the ministry of the word. It's the responsibility of the elders of the church to make sure that that ministry flourishes. And my prayer for you, as my own prayer for myself, is as it is, I place myself under the authority of God's word. He will indeed transform me. He will indeed equip me. And he'll give me greater freedom and liberty to do the very things that he wants me to do. For the sake of his great name. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you that when you found us uh, broken, uh, you mended us. We thank you that uh, although we could not mend ourselves, uh, you, like a kindly watchmaker, put a new spring, as it were, into the very centre of our being. And realign the hands of our clock so that we might, as it were, keep time with you. And we pray, Father, that uh, you would continue that work of renewing our inner being. Continue your work of revealing your word to us and illumining our minds. And give us a fresh resolve, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to undertake those works of service which you have prepared for us in advance to do. And we ask it for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.